Well, it is good to see you today. I'm so glad that you're here as we continue counting down to the end of our run at Chums uh, and to the opening of our new building where we no doubt will be welcoming in a lot of people who have never joined us before. Uh, I obviously have no concrete way of knowing exactly who or how many people will be joining us for the first time, but I'll tell you the anecdotal evidence is off the charts. Never before in our 12 years together have I had so many people out in the community stop me and say, hey, you're part of the Heartland Church thing, right? And I'll say yes, and they'll say, we're going to join you once you open your new building. In fact, this week on Monday, I was down in Beloit, Wisconsin, like, I don't know, 45 minutes away, maybe even more than that. And uh, I ran into somebody I've only seen, only talked to a couple times in my life. And that guy said, hey, I want you to know that my wife and I are excited to join your church once you open your new building. And I thought you know, in Beloit, Wisconsin. And he said, no, we, we don't live here. He said, I commute down for work. I actually live in Sun Prairie. And several of my wife's coworkers go to Heartland. They're part of Heartland. And they've been talking about how excited they are and about what a great church it is. And so we're really excited to check it out once we open our new space, once you open your new space. And so that has made me think of at least a couple of things. Number one, that has made me think, I want to invite all of you to make it your job, your responsibility to be the welcoming committee when we move into that space in a few weeks. When we move back into that space, you are going to be in a new building as well, but you're going to know how to navigate the space better than people who are showing up for the very first time. And so I want you to have eyes to see people who are new. And, and when you see somebody who looks like they're new or they don't know where they're going, I want to encourage you to go and introduce yourself and say hi to them and, and ask what their name is and ask if you can answer any questions for them. Unfortunately, so many people in our world today who don't have a church family that they're a part of, when they think of church, they automatically think of it as being this kind of clicky thing where like you have to be a part of the inner circle. And that is absolutely not the case for us here at Heartland. That is everything that we're against. We have a place and, and a spot for everybody in our community and we want everybody to be in equally. And so if you see somebody who's new, please make them feel welcome and just take that responsibility on yourself. And I think if we all do that, we'll be able to hit everybody who joins us. The second thing that that means, if we have a lot of people joining us, is that that gives us three more opportunities counting today. That gives us today and only two more opportunities to talk about some really fundamental things that serve as sort of the foundation for the ministry before we open our doors to people who are new and we try to talk about some things that are really going to hit home for them. And so to help facilitate that conversation over these last few weeks that we're here at Cardinal Heights, we've been in this series, or we started last week, we'll continue the series today, that we're simply calling It's Not About. And the idea behind this series is the phrase, it's not about. It's the phrase that so many of us use regularly. You probably use it without even thinking about it. You probably use it just instinctively when you want to clarify to somebody that you're talking to, it's not about this, it's actually about that. Right? We'll use this phrase when we're, we're talking to somebody. We'll say, no, 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 it's not about that, it's about this other thing. Right? Usually when we, when we use that phrase, what we mean is it's actually not about what it seems to be on the surface. It's actually about something much deeper than that. It's usually something more significant than that. And so, for example, maybe when you were in school and thinking about what you wanted to do for the rest of your life, maybe somebody said to you like, hey, hey listen, when you think about what you want to do for a living, keep in mind that it's not about there's our phrase, it's not about the paycheck you'll receive, it's about doing something you love because you're going to end up giving the best hours of your life to it, so choose wisely, right? And you probably thought what I kind of thought when I first heard that, and I thought, well, you know what, I will be able to fall in love with whatever pays me the biggest paycheck, and so you just kind of figure it out from there. 
Another example of the use of the phrase, it's not about, came to mind for me this week when I was at growth group on Wednesday night. Uh, When I was at growth group on Wednesday night, one of the gentlemen in the group told the story of how his daughter has been begging him for a puppy. And he just really, he's like, this. my daughter just wants this puppy so badly. And she's just, you know, pleading with us, will you please get me a puppy, daddy? And uh, this little girl, man, if you knew her, she is so sweet. She is so precious. Like, I have no idea how he is saying no to his daughter with this, right? Because he said, she's like, listen, dad, I, I would love our puppy. I will love it so much. I'll love it so strong. That puppy would never go without love. That, that puppy would never know what it feels like to be unloved. And this dad is saying what, you know, we kind of understand. He's going, listen, it's not about whether or not the puppy would be loved. It's about the training and the cleaning and the mess and the boarding when we go out of time and a hundred other things. Now, again, this is the sweetest little girl who is asking for this puppy. And so he tells us that story on Wednesday night. On Thursday night, many of you know that we had the dedication of our new space. And when we dedicated the building, we invited people to spread out across the main auditorium and to write their prayers on the floor. We invited people to take a marker and just write a Bible verse on the floor, maybe the name of somebody they're praying for. Maybe it's a prayer for our community as a whole. And so, of course, once we were done with that and everybody left, I, of course, had to go through and read some of those. Like, I'm just an emotional guy, and I love those, those moments of just kind of being in the, the, a still, quiet place and seeing what people in our church are praying for. And so I came across a prayer with this little girl's name on it. And so I was so intrigued to see what she prayed for. And the first half of her prayer, no kidding, the first half of her prayer was for other kids her age. And then it continued, and look at this picture. I took a picture of it. Look at what she prayed. Now, you may not be able to read that, so let me read it to you. She wrote, And Lord, I know it's a lot to ask, but maybe let me get a puppy too, if it's your will. (laughs) If it's your will? Most adults who have been following Jesus for decades do not pray, if it's your will. This little girl prayed, if it's your will, maybe let me get a puppy, Lord. Now, this may be foul ball, but I saw the family walk into this service today. So I think we should all collectively put a little pressure on dad on behalf of this little girl So I think we've got a a picture to remind us what she's asking for. So on the count of three, if you think that dad should let his daughter get a puppy like this, will you say, yes, can we give it up? Yes. Let let me just add, dad, that getting a puppy, getting (laughs) getting a puppy has never been about the wise thing to do. It's about the love. It's all about the love. All right, moving on. Uh, So you know this phrase, right? We use this phrase, it's not about. We understand that. And so last week when we kicked the series off, we said it's not about volunteering, right? It's actually about something much deeper than volunteering. And the passage of Scripture that we looked at was 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we began in verse 12 where the Apostle Paul compares the body of Christ to the physical body. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, listen, the church body is just like the physical body. It's made up of many parts. And all the various parts have a role to play. 
And for your physical body to function the way that it was designed to function, every part in the body has to play its part. And he said it's the same thing in the church body. It takes everybody in the church family to play their part in order for the church to function the way that God intended for it to function. And so at the end of that passage, I said, hey, listen, as we get ready to open our space to more people, I want to invite more of you to start functioning as the part in the body that you've been created and called to be. And so I said, hey, we need between like 100 and 200 people to sign up and to join us by being part of the body. And I am so excited to tell you that I asked our team this week, how many people have signed up this month to join the team? And you know how many people have responded? 175 of you have already responded. Can we give it up for everybody who has said, yes, I will be part of the body? I love that. I love the response from so many of you. You joining the team and starting to serve will be like pouring fuel on the fire that is already raging, and God is going to continue doing incredible things. And I just want to remind you that when you start serving, and when you, maybe it's months from now, you start to ask yourself, why am I doing this again? Why am I getting up early? Why am I, you know, serving in a kid's room? You are doing it because you are living beyond yourself. You are doing it because you are investing in the next generation. You are investing in the community around you. Every single life that God changes through our church will be part of your legacy because you had a role to play in that. So way to go. I love it. And to those of you, well, yeah, you can clap. Um, To those of you who signed up, let me just add one more thing. To those of you who signed up, now we need you to show up, right? (laughs) Because in the words of this language, it's not actually about signing up. It's actually about showing up. And so I want to make sure that you open your email, that you respond to the emails from our team, that you actually show up to get trained, you actually put yourself on the schedule, and then you actually fulfill that commitment, right? Because here's the deal. Many of you will have signed up, but as time passes, if you don't take ownership of that process, you may slip through the cracks, and months from now, you'll realize you've never served. That you, you haven't started functioning as the part in the body that you've been designed and called to function as. And so I want to invite you to take ownership of that process. And I want to invite you to say, you know what? I'm going to own the fact that, that I want to make sure I get trained. And I want to make sure that I get on the schedule so that I make sure that I actually get to show up and serve. Because again, it's not about signing up. It's about showing up. Okay, one last thing, and then we'll get into today's passage. Uh, To those of you who have not yet joined the team, there is still time, there is still room, and we still have need. And so if you've not signed up yet, all you have to do is send a text to this number. All you have to do is write the words, Go Team, without any spaces, to the numbers 33777, and you will immediately get a response back, and it is a very simple, straightforward way to get joined uh, onto the team. And so thank you in advance for doing that. I love that. I love doing our church with you. All right, now today, today we want to continue the series with a new topic. Last week we looked at an it's not about from the Apostle Paul. Today I want us to look at an it's not about type statement from the greatest it's not about teacher of all time, Jesus himself. And the passage that we're going to look at comes to us in what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you like to bring a Bible and follow along, go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to jump into the Sermon on the Mount today. But if you stop and think about it for a second, those of you who are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you might recognize that the Sermon on the Mount is actually one entire list of an it's not about statement after another. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount hits a variety, a wide-ranging variety of topics. And when doing so, he keeps using this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And really, if you think about what he is saying in that statement, is he is saying, you think it's about this, 
But I'm here to tell you it's actually about that. Let me give you an example. Let me just kind of tick through before we get to our passage. Uh, some of the different things that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, he begins by talking about the Old Testament law. And he says, look, it's not about doing away with the Old Testament law. It's about fulfilling it and raising the bar on it. And then Jesus begins talking about adultery. And he says it's not just about what you do with your physical body. It's also about your mind. It's not just about your actions. He says this is about your thought life. Then he talks about how we treat people we don't like or how we treat people we don't get along with. And he goes, listen, it's not about doing what's, what's, what's practical. It's not about doing what's logical or makes sense. It's not about doing or treating them the way that everybody else would treat them or the way that you would be understood to treat them. It's about relationship and it's about love. Then he talks about prayer. And he says it's not about convincing God by using a lot of words. Prayer is about having a relationship with your perfect heavenly Father. Then he talks about fasting. And he says fasting, it's not about putting on a show for others. It's about humbling yourself before your Creator. And then he talks about, about the wise and foolish builders. And he says all of this, it's not about all my teaching. It's not about hearing it. It's not about understanding it. He says it's about doing it. It's about putting it into action. The wise and foolish builders, the difference between them, it's not about hearing what I have to say to teach. He says it's about doing it. And I think after that, then I think maybe the most liberating thing that Jesus says in these if it's not about statements is when he gets to money. And he says, oh, people, please, listen, listen. He goes, listen, it is not about money at all. And what Jesus goes on to teach in the Sermon on the Mount is absolutely liberating. And that's the thing that I want us to look at today. And that's the thing that I want us to see us, I want to see us grow from today. Now, before we do, let me just make the disclaimer that I make so frequently when money comes up at church. I recognize that for many of you, when you hear the pastor start talking about church, your barriers go up. Right? Your walls go up, and that could be for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's because you had a bad church, church experience with it where they used guilt or pressure or obligation, some of those things that we will never, ever, ever use here at Heartland. Maybe it's just because you're like all of us and you simply want more money and don't want anybody talking about how you should handle it. Right? Uh, that's probably true for most all of us. But the reality is we can't get away from the fact that Jesus spent more time talking about money than he did any other subject. Maybe you've heard that statistic before, but maybe not. But it's true. Jesus spent more time talking about money than any other subject. In fact, he spent more time talking about money than he did all of heaven and hell combined. And you have to ask yourself, well, why would he do that? Why was Jesus spending so much time talking about money? I think it's clear when you read what he had to say about it, it's clear he spent so much time talking about it because he understood what a significant role money plays in our day-to-day, -day, practical, real-world lives. And Jesus wanted it to, us to get it right. So many people today struggle with their finances. So many people struggle living paycheck to paycheck or living under a mountain of debt. I was doing some research this week and I saw a study that said money is the number one stressor in the lives of the average American by far. It is more than twice as common as the biggest stressor in someone's life as the second thing, which is relationships, and the third thing, which is jobs. What's interesting when you dig into the relationship stress or the job stress is so much of those stresses come back to money at the end of the day as well. And so Jesus understood that. Jesus understood that so many of us receive a fantastic education across a wide range of topics, but he knew that so, so few of us ever receive a lot of wise money management. And so Jesus said, listen, I want to help you get this right. 
And it's important to understand, Jesus spent so much time talking about money, but it was not because he wanted it. Right? Jesus never asked for any money. We see no example of Jesus asking for money. It's not like every time Jesus got up and gave a sermon, he also received an offering. To which some of you are thinking, well, why then every time you get up and teach a sermon do we receive an offering? Well, that's, that gets into other things, right? Jesus could also turn rocks into bread and eat those if he needed to, and we can't do that. Um, and Jesus invited us to pool our resources to fund the, the growth of the kingdom in our community. And he said, when you do that, I'll use that, that act of obedience to liberate you from greed and materialism as well and break the bond on your heart. And so, that, again, that's all for another day. But you need to understand that what Jesus was saying This is the very first thing in Scripture that we have recorded from Jesus as it talks about money. And he jumps right into it in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 21. And about halfway through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets straight to the core. And you'll see what what I'm talking about here in just a second. But verse 21, Jesus says this. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. And at the core of all of Jesus' teaching on money, at the core of everything he wanted you and I to understand is the simple and yet absolutely profound truth that it is not about the money, it's about the heart. What I know to be true of you because it's true of me and I've lived the same life you've lived and I've experienced the same desires you've, dis- you've experienced is that at the end of the day, our thoughts and our feelings and our relationship with money is not actually about money at all. It's about our heart and what's going on inside of us there. This is so important to understand that the foundation of all of Jesus' you know, plethora of teaching on money was the fact that he was not talking about money. Jesus taught 30-some-odd parables, and about a third of them were dedicated to finances. One-third of Jesus' teaching was all about money. But it, it was all about money because it was actually not all about money. In fact, it was not about money at all. It was all about Jesus' listeners' hearts. And if there's one thing that God cares about deeply, it is your heart. And so as we look at this passage together from Matthew chapter 6 today, I want to invite you to make this the lens through which you see this passage, understanding that as he talks about money, he's not talking about money, he's talking about our hearts. So let's look at this again. Matthew 6, 21, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, we're going to break this down. We'll begin with the treasure piece. I don't know if you caught this, but maybe for some of you who are new to the Bible, when Jesus was talking about treasure, He was not actually talking about pirates, okay? I just want to clarify that. I know some of you thought maybe. No, I know. I know you didn't think that. But listen, when he's talking about treasure, he's talking about our money, but not just our cash money. He's talking about our possessions. He's talking about all the objects that we own that we, wait for it. He's talking about the objects that we treasure, Get it? You see what I did there with the word treasure? Yeah, okay, maybe not. Um, Anyway, he's saying, listen, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If that's true, I see at least two massive implications of that. There are probably a thousand more, but there are two implications that just jump off the page at me that we have to take the time to look at. And the first one is simply this, that if what Jesus said is true, that means if we track our treasure, we will find what we love, right? 
If what Jesus said is true, that means if we track our treasure, we will find where our heart is. When he said where your heart is, he was talking about what we love, what we're, we feel affection towards, what we are leaned in or inclined to. For thousands of years now, people have talked about the heart as a metaphor for their love. We think of our heart as the storehouse of our love. Even as little kids, you might say things like, I love you, right? You point to your eye and then you point to your heart and you're just like, I heart you, right? Did you ever do that? Did you ever, somebody you thought was cute, you're like, Right? No, I never did that. Of course not. I'm a tough man. No. Um, Or we'll shorthand this. Sometimes my daughter will write me a note and she'll say, Daddy, I love you. But she won't write the word love out. She'll draw this little heart and it's so cute. It kind of looks like this. And I see that and I, I, I know what she means. I know what she's conveying. She's saying, I heart you. She's, she's saying, I, I love you. We think of our heart as our love, which means if we track our treasure, we will find what we love. So how do you do that? Okay, how do you put that into practice? Well, I'll never forget when I was a little kid in our country church, this this small church, this rural church, our pastor said, and I'll never forget, he said, if you want to know what you love, just look at your checkbook. And so for 30 years now, I was probably seven years old when I heard that, for 30 years, I have never forgotten, if I want to know what I'm loving right now, all I have to do is look at my checkbook. And so I still do this. I will tangibly go to the drawer and I will get out the family checkbook from time to time and I will ask myself, where's the money going? Actually, that's the first thought I have is, where did all the money go? I thought there would be more in here. But the next thought I have is, where is all the money going? Because what is it that I love? And when I do that, just being real transparent with you, one of the things that I find when I look at our family's checkbook is apparently I love feeding my children. There's like a disproportionate amount of our resources that go towards grocery stores in the community. So I am helping prop up everybody who works at a grocery store um, because it gets a lot of our finances right now because I love feeding our children. Now, maybe you don't use a checkbook. Maybe you don't have a checkbook to go back and flip through. Millennials, I'm talking to you right now, right? Uh, Maybe for you, a better place to go to look would be to look at your credit card statement summary. A lot of credit cards these days will group all of your expenditures, all of your purchases into different categories, and that provides a simple way for you to know at a glance where your treasure's going, where your heart is. And you look at that statement summary, and maybe you'll realize, oh, I really love entertainment. Right? Oh, I really love the clothing category. Right? Whatever it is for you, you will see it at a glance by looking at the credit card statement. And so what I want to do today is to help us implement this so that we can be the wise builders who actually put into practice what Jesus said, and not just be hearers and not doers, is I want to give you a little bit of homework today. I want to give you the homework, and the homework is simply this. I want to encourage you to track your spending for two months. I want to encourage you to track every dollar you spend for two months. Why two months? Well, because one month could be an anomaly, right? Maybe in one month you had some purchases that aren't reflective of your your overall spending habits. Like for me right now, if you looked at the last month, you'd see I spent a, a disproportionate amount of money on my car. My car's almost 13 years old. It has over 200,000 miles on it, and it is like repeatedly breaking down right now. And so I've been spending a lot of money on my car. Apparently, I love my car. I don't. Uh, Actually, I do love my car. It's just my car doesn't love me. Um, Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. So, but, but the point is, one month isn't long enough. 
Three months would be better. I just don't think most of you would do three months. So I, sa- I settled on two. I made the homework two months. So, so take two months. And the best way to do this is to go back. If you have the records, you can do this even today. Go back and look at the last two months and see where all of your money is going. If you don't have those records stored, then do this going forward and take the next two months and just every time you make a purchase, record it so that at the end of two months, you can see where your heart is. You can see what you love. And if you, if you don't have it, you can download one of the apps that make it easy to record that. Maybe you don't want to use an app. Uh, boomers, I'm talking to you. Um, you could use it Microsoft Excel, right? That's what I do. I use Microsoft Excel. It works well. But track your spending for two months and hear me say, this is all for you. Right? This has nothing to do with me. You're not going to talk about this in growth group. This isn't one of the questions I wrote for this week. This is simply information for you to have that I think will be interesting. Remember, facts are your friend. And so all you're doing in this exercise is gathering some facts to see where is my money going, where is my heart going. The other big implication from Jesus' statement for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, is that this means we have the ability to move our heart to where we want it. What Jesus was saying was that we have control over our hearts and we can make sure that our hearts are where they should be. And if they're not, we have the power to direct it where, it, where we want it to go. And the reason for this is because what Jesus said is that our heart follows our money. He said our heart follows our money. He says where your treasure is, your heart will be. It will follow the money. Now, at first glance, maybe when I read that or when I say that, maybe you think, ah, Jesus, I think you got that backwards. Like, Jesus, don't you mean that my money follows my heart? Like, we love vacations, so we direct a lot of money towards vacation. We love driving new fancy cars, so a lot of our money goes to the dealership. We love the thought of doing nothing in retirement, so a lot of our money goes to our 401k, right? Doesn't, isn't it true, Jesus, that my money follows my heart? Well, there's some truth to that, but Jesus said no. Jesus said your heart will actually follow your money. And if you think about this a little bit deeper, you probably have experiences that have proven this to be true for you as well. Uh, I have experiences of this. The example that came to mind for me was the first time I ever purchased a stock right? I've not purchased a lot of stocks. I don't know much about stocks, but when I was 22 years old, somebody said, hey, John, you should buy some Pfizer stock. Now, again, I knew nothing about investing in the stock market. I knew nothing about the pharmaceutical industry. I did not love Pfizer. All I did was I googled Pfizer to understand, like, what is this company? And I saw that they make Viagra, and at 22, I thought that was funny, so I bought some (laughs) Pfizer stock. And I'm just being honest with you. And, um, But you know what I found then? I did not love that company initially, but my affection certainly went towards it after I invested my money in it, right? After I had put my money in it, I suddenly cared a whole lot more about that company. And I started to read reports. I started to understand what, 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 you know, medications they had in the pipeline. I started to read up on their mergers and acquisitions. I started to pay attention to turnover in their leadership. Like I suddenly cared about this company only because I had put my money there. And what Jesus said is true. Our heart follows our money. Now what's liberating about that truth is that means if you don't like where your heart is, you can change it. If you don't like how you feel when you think about money, you have the power to control that. 
You can be the type of person who, once you track your spending, you'll be able to look at that and go, is my money going where I want it to go? Is it going where I'm proud of? Maybe you'll look at that and say, you know what? Too much of my money is going somewhere I don't want it to go. Or the opposite. Maybe you'll look at that and you'll say, not enough of my money is going where I want it to go, where I'm proud that it is going. Maybe you're saying, I'm not spending my money the way that I, I, the person I want to become would spend their money. This is why so many of us give our, our money to our local church. Right? I, I, this is why I personally do that, because I want to be the type of person whose heart goes towards God, who goes to my, my Heavenly Father. I want to be the type of man who cares about the spread of the good news of Jesus with people in my very community, the community where I live. Yes, I care about it for all around the world, but I care deeply about people hearing the good news of Jesus in my community. And so I direct my, my money there. And what I have found over the last 15 years is that the more I do that, the more my heart goes to God and the more freeing that is. And this is a big part of what Jesus is getting after, is that if you don't like where your heart is, the question would be, then where can you begin to put more money? If you are really honest with yourself for a second, ask yourself, how anxious do you feel about money? How much do you worry about money? How much do you fear the future and not having enough? Maybe if you're really, really honest with yourself for a second, you would recognize that you've got some money, right? Like you're not worried about paying the rent. You're not worried about paying the mortgage. But for you, you would recognize that materialism has a grip on your heart because you spend a disproportionate amount of time thinking about money and wishing you had more money and thinking how you would spend that money if you had more of it. If that's you, how do you feel about that? Because what Jesus said is that if you wanted to change that, you can. You choose to put more money somewhere that you would be proud to have your heart, and your heart will follow. And then he continues, verse 22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. He's going to give us sort of a confusing illustration, but stay with me. I'll explain it. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad... Then your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now this seems like kind of a confusing thing to talk about, our eyes and light in the middle of a like, sermon on money. But what Jesus was using here was he was using an idiom. An idiom is a figure of speech that doesn't mean what it seems on the surface. It's actually alluding to something else. It's not about that, what it seems. It's about something else. So, for example, if a coworker was talking to you about a project at work and they said, yeah, I signed up for this project, but it turned out to be way bigger than I ever imagined it to be. I have bitten off more than I could chew. You know they're not talking about the size of their mouth or the size of their like, lunch. You know they're talking about their stress level. That's an idiom, right? Well, in first century Jewish culture, we know from New Testament scholars like Craig Keener that having a good eye was an idiom for somebody who was generous, and having a bad eye was an idiom for someone who was selfish or greedy. And so what Jesus is saying here is that if your eyes are good, like if you live a life of generosity, then your whole life, your whole body will be filled with light and the flip side of that is, is also true, that if, you, if your eyes are bad, like if you're filled with materialism and greed, your life will be full of darkness. And those of us who have been through seasons where that's been kind of the big focus on our life, you know that this is true, the summary of like how dark is that darkness. When, when greed has gripped your heart, there is a part of you that just that feels dark, it feels heavy, 
It doesn't feel good. You recognize that that's not how you were created to live. And, and what Jesus was saying is true. And so, so again, you have the ability to change that. You have the ability to go from having a bad eye to having a good eye. Think for a second about how good it feels to have a good eye. Think about how good it feels to live a life of generosity. Maybe think for a second about the last time you purchased a, a gift for someone who was not going to return a gift. You don't have to do a show of hands right now, but have you ever given a gift to a child through a program like the Spirit of, of, of Giving here in Sun Prairie, right, where we buy Christmas presents for kids in our community who might not otherwise receive a Christmas present? Maybe you've bought a gift for a child through Project Angel Tree, right? That's where you buy a Christmas gift on behalf of a parent who's incarcerated. And like a little child has a, a dad or a mom in prison, and they're not going to get them a, a Christmas present, but you send them a Christmas present with their parent's name on it, and they think, my dad got me a gift from prison. Like, or maybe you've done the Operation Christmas Child, and you've packed a shoebox for people, Right? Here's the crazy thing about that. When you bought those things and when you packed that shoebox, there was something inside you that felt so good. And the craziest thing is that you were never going to meet that child. You were never going to get to, to see the reaction on their face when they un, unwrapped that gift. And yet there was a part of you that came alive. There was a part of you that was filled with light when you did that. Why is that? Why is that true? Why is that a universal truth? Well, the reason is because when you did that, you aligned your heart with the heart of your creator. And when you did that, you placed a part of your treasure, you took part of your money, and you put it into the life of that child. And when you put your money in the life of that child, your heart followed your money and your heart aligned with the heart of that child. That was the image of God in you. That was you living out the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God in your own life. Jesus knew what he was talking about. That it's not about the money. It's about the heart. And then he brings this passage to a close in verse 24, where Jesus seemingly takes another odd turn, and he says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the first and despise the other. And then his conclusion statement to all of this is simply, you cannot serve both God and money. That seems like an odd twist, that you would be tempted to serve either God or money. Jesus, don't you mean you cannot serve both God and Satan? Don't you mean that you cannot serve both God and sin? Like, Jesus, why is it you cannot serve both God and money? Well, part of the reason is because the vast majority of people are not tempted to serve God or Satan. Right? Nobody's signing up to, to serve sin. And yet billions of people across the globe from every walk of life, from every generation, have lived their lives dedicated to serving money. And so Jesus says the thing that is going to compete for your affection for your father the most will be money. You cannot serve both God and your money. And really what he was saying when he said that is, you cannot serve both God and yourself. You cannot serve both God and me. You cannot serve both God and, in the language of the Bible, you cannot serve God or your flesh. Right? What is the flesh? Well, the flesh is your, is your sin nature. Your flesh is your desires detached from God. Your flesh is all of the things away from God left to our own devices. That's our flesh. And Jesus said, you cannot, and you know this is true from your own experience, you will either love God 
and hate your sin nature. You will hate that it takes you away from him. You will hate how it makes you feel. You will hate that it draws you away from what you know to be the most important things in life for all of eternity, in light of all of eternity. You will either love God and hate your sin nature, or there will be a part of you that is devoted to pleasing your sin nature. And in those seasons of your life, there will be a part of you that despises God. You will despise God. You will despise his claims upon your life. You will despise his call to come and die to yourself. We despise the conviction we feel. We despise him, and we are consumed with me. What I want, what I need, what I deserve, what I should have, my comfort, my experience, my life. And so as we wrap up this morning, let me leave you with the simple but profound question, are you serving God or money? If you really spend some time thinking about this this week, are you serving God or money? Does the preponderance of evidence in your life point to one or the other? You won't have to tell anyone this. Again, this is not a growth group question. We're going to ask you to share. But I want you to ask yourself this question because the answer could change your life. The answer to that question, knowing that you have the ability to change where your heart is and what you are serving by where you direct your finances, could set you free. If you struggle with anxiety or fear or worry or, or stress when it comes to money, isn't it time for you to try something new? Isn't it worth experimenting with some other approach to where you put your finances? Isn't it worth giving it a try? This week, we will take time as a nation to celebrate the holiday of Thanksgiving. And what a fantastic week to do an inventory of our heart to ask ourselves these questions on Thanksgiving week. But on Thanksgiving, many of us will take the time to sit down and think through a list of things that we're grateful for, things that we're thankful for. I don't know about your own tradition, but maybe you gather together with a community of people around the table every Thanksgiving and you go around the circle and everybody takes the time to share one thing that they're thankful for. If you do that on Thursday this year, I want to invite you to pay attention to what people are thankful for. And here's exactly what I want you to look at and what I want you to think about. Pay attention to how many people go around the circle, how many people give thanks for something they purchased this year with money, and how many people give thanks for things that are more intangible, things like people, things like relationships, things like their health or the blessings of God. I think what you'll find is that at the end of the day, Jesus was right. It's not about money. It's about our heart. Let me pray for you. Lord, this passage is equal parts convicting and liberating. But Lord, we want to be people who are like the wise builders, who don't just hear what you say and then walk away and forget it. We want to be people who put it into action. We want to experience the, the abundant life that you've offered to us. And we know the way to do it is to live out what you teach. And Lord, certainly where you talk about money, this has such a play in our actual, everyday, concrete, real-world life. So Lord, let us get this right. Lord, would the church be a beacon of light, an example to the community around us so that they can experience the abundant life that you want for them as well? Can we be an example for them that when you handle your finances correctly, God does incredible things? And Lord, would our lives be, would be liberating to them as we continue to seek 
the opportunity to awaken our diverse community to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and everybody who agreed with this prayer said, Amen. Hey, have a great Thanksgiving, everybody. We'll see you next week as we continue. It's not about...